Welcome to the Heoni podcast series. The European Institute for Crime Prevention and Control, affiliated with the United Nations, is the European link in the network of institutes operating within the framework of the United Nations Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice Program. The work started in 1981, and today we are celebrating Heoni's 40th anniversary. This episode is Dr. Rick Brown, the Deputy Director of the Australian Institute of Criminology. He has been a criminologist for 30 years and has worked extensively on issues associated with crime prevention, community safety and policing in Australia, the UK and Republic of Ireland. Rick has published over 60 government reports, book chapters and articles on a range of issues including antisocial behaviour, arson, burglary, CCTV, community justice, drink driving, implementing crime prevention, organised crime, policing and vehicle crime. He holds a PhD from the London School of Economics and Political Science and is on the editorial boards of the Journal of Community Safety, the Crime Prevention and Community Safety Journal, and the Security Journal. So welcome, Rick. And what's the time right there? Because it's 10 a.m. here in Finland and the sun is shining. Ah, it's uh, just gone five o'clock and the sun is not far off setting here, but it's been a beautiful day. So the Australian Institute of Criminology and the European Institute for Crime Prevention and Control, meaning HEONI, are part of the UN's Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice Program Network. So the AIC and HEONI are part of the same family tree within the United Nations. What kind of shifts in trends have you seen from your perspective and on the basis of your observations? How should we prepare for the changing crime trends? I think it's a difference between long-term uh, crime trend changes globally and and probably changes that we've seen in the last 18 months I guess and uh, and how that may affect the future as well in terms of you know those those global crime trends we've we've been witnessing um, certainly from a if you like a you know a western world perspective we've we've seen some some really interesting patterns some of those have been cases of crime going down which is still difficult to explain and in other cases we've, we've seen crime going up what do we see with crime going down at the moment? Certainly in Australia, and I know it's the case in the, the US, uh, parts of Europe and, and UK, we've seen quite a tre- tremendous drop in property crime. So, you know, things uh, like uh, theft, street robberies, burglaries, theft of vehicles. We've actually seen uh, in, in those categories of crime significant declines here in Australia, for example, uh, vehicle crime fell by about 70% over the course of, of 10 years. Uh, so, and and you know, things like, we used to monitor at the AIC, we used to monitor uh, street robbery. And uh, we just stopped uh, monitoring it because it was no longer an issue that anyone was interested in because they, they happen so rarely. So we've, we've, and we've yet to explain uh, what's what's been happening. You know, why why after, you know, decades of, of steady rises in, in, in crime, we, we, we we did see those declines. It's also not equally uh, distributed. Uh, so you know, we do see that, that there's some, some good research around burglary, for example, that shows that it's the, the more wealthier suburbs that, that experience more declines than, than the more deprived areas. And similarly, even by gender, uh, we've seen, for example, that there's been a significant fall in male victimization in, in Australia in terms of violent crime. Uh, we've seen a, seen a decline in, in violent crime, but that's pretty much made up of declines in males having fights in uh, entertainment districts uh, when, you know, out, out on a Friday and Saturday night. And then the other, the other big trend, which kind of feeds off the, the uh, fall in violence, is, is, is homicide. And certainly here in Australia, homicide is pretty much at its, at its lowest rate ever. In, in other parts of the world, that's, there's, there's been similar declines. Some real benefits that, that we've seen there, I, I, and we're not quite sure why that that's the case. And I think you know, there's lots of arguments that were going on amongst criminologists about uh, what's been happening there. But there's also been um, losers, I guess, as well in the sense of their crime has uh, has gone up in in other areas. So you know we've seen uh, increases in domestic violence and sexual assault, for example. Um, what I guess we're not sure about still is whether that's a function of real increases or whether it's a it's a uh, a decline in tolerance for uh, for those sorts of crimes anymore so we're seeing women more likely to report and for it to be taken more seriously than it perhaps once was and i, I, and I guess that's still still uh, uh, debatable 
in other areas, uh, cybercrime is the other issue that we've seen uh, rise tremendously in recent years. You know, as you know, our, as our bandwidth gets better, as uh, we we spend more time online. Uh, I'm just looking in front of me here, and I've got three devices. I've got two laptops and a and a mobile phone. You know, all of which give give me internet access, and all of which you know are potentially uh, vectors by which I can be victimized with different sorts of cybercrime, whether it be kind of cybersecurity issues or whether it be, you know, fraud and scams that people uh, try to get victims with. And then finally, um, a kind of a subset, I suppose, of cybercrime is uh, uh, something that the ARC is spending a lot of time on is, is uh, online child sexual abuse. And, and that's an area in which we're seeing just uh, horrific increases around the world. In And, and again, it's that uh, opportunity aspect as uh, internet access grows around the world as people spend more time online. Largely, men are looking for those opportunities to uh, exploit children online anywhere in the world. So, you know, real winners and losers there in terms of difference, difference uh, in crime trends that we're seeing around the world. But you have done a lot of research on how we can use digital platforms, for example, in courts. And uh, you also have, have this podcast incoming on the live streaming of child sexual exploitation. It, it's been... Uh, a passion is not the right word, but but certainly something which the institute has really invested heavily in in the last three or four years. I guess uh, we've we've gone through I guess two or three phases of of research. We we funded uh, a program of work with academics on the child sexual abuse material reduction research program, which tried to identify uh, new ways in which we could solve the the problem by taking a kind of crime science approach, where we put together interdisciplinary teams that could look at the issue from different perspectives and come up with solutions which were very much focused on how do you block those opportunities for, for crime to occur. What that uh, and, and those projects are now coming to fruition and we've, over the last year we've been steadily publishing the results and, and so we've been producing uh, research that's looked at new treatment programs that can work with offenders that are involved in consuming child sexual abuse material. We've, we've undertaken a systematic review to identify what criminal justice responses seem to work. And actually what we found was that there's, there's relatively little that we know at the moment works. There's real fertile ground. And then we've got some, some new research that's, that's about to be published from the program, which is quite exciting. So developing approaches which are uh, showing that pop-up messages actually work to, to uh, prevent consumers from accessing material. And actually something uh, I got, actually funny enough, I actually just got an email from the research team this morning to say they'd finally cracked it. But uh, it's a team that's been working on uh, developing a biometrics tool that includes facial recognition, but for the first time, including voice recognition within a web crawler that can identify child sexual abuse material. And they'll also begin to link the same child and the same perpetrator across videos that could be really exciting as a as a, as a new tool that we um, we give access to uh, law enforcement agencies to identify new material which is uh, really difficult so so uh, a real um uh, i think a program that's really produced some valuable research outcomes since then uh, w one of the interesting things that we missed when we we launched that program was um was live streaming of child sexual abuse so which only people started to talk about after we'd funded all these projects. So we then set up a second program which specifically targeted this issue around live streaming. That, that what we're finding is that there are cohorts of, you know, our focus is, is obviously on Australia. And we're finding there are cohorts of Australian males, particularly aged in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that are buying live streaming of child sexual abuse, particularly in developing countries like the Philippines and, and places in Southeast Asia. Uh, and now we're looking at ways in which we can tackle that problem. So we've been doing research, which has been looking at the chat logs that the uh, consumers undertake negotiation with facilitators and identifying ways in which we may be able to either identify individuals or, or stop opportunities for those chats occurring. Uh, we've been working with our uh, Australian financial intelligence agency here to see if we can use machine learning methods to identify the, those individuals that are paying for the live streaming. So there's always a payment with, with those live streaming uh, performances. Uh, and if you can identify those individuals, then uh, we may be able to block those transactions in future. So some really um, 
really important research that that is all about trying to make a difference in this area. And it sounds like you have the technology under control. I'm just thinking here that is this something that Australia has uh, developed or is it in use somewhere else? And how could the rest of the world use this technology? Yeah, and, and I think you know what what we're trying to do is to 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 make those products available. And, and I think you know there are other teams around the world working on on similar areas. I know that you know there there are you know, NGOs that invest significantly in trying to deal with this as a problem so i think you know i guess i don't want to overstate our role but you know i think there's a that there's potential there for for a benefit so i think you know that that i mentioned the the web crawler with the biometrics uh incorporated that's something which you know we could envisage being uh, a real value to uh, law enforcement agencies to be able to you know use on their collections to to be able to crawl and identify uh, new material and, and to triage existing material that that they they have to deal with, which hopefully may then deal with some some of the kind of vicarious trauma that they experience as well. One of the programs that we're actually looking at, I mentioned the pop-ups, which are you know pop-up messages that that say you know it's a crime to to view this material or that therapeutic messages, which are if you if you feel that this is a problem, then click on this link to to engage with this organisation that may be able to help you. That's an area which we want to develop further in the in the coming years to to develop, um, if you like, evidence based pop up messages that could be used by uh, other organisations in on their own uh, networks. You know, we're thinking anywhere where there's a linking onto Wi Fi networks, for example, that, that these pop up messages could be freely available. So that's an area which, in the fullness of time, we would uh, we would hope that uh, anyone could use those kinds of messages, knowing that they have some efficacy behind them. So it's kind of targeted ads for something important. Yeah, like helping. Exactly. Yeah, and and I think what we've, we know already from the existing research being done. So so there are, the team that we've been working with they have now trialed two different kind of methods uh, of uh, using kind of randomized controlled trials to show how effective pop ups are, uh, and they they it shows that they do have efficacy in just stopping, particularly those that may individuals that may be just searching for new things, you know, new excitement and looking for new things to go into. This, it seems to, it seems to work for, you know, potentially that kind of cohort. So, uh, yeah, in the fullness of time, we, we, we hope that that will, you know, will, will have some benefit, yeah. Considering that the AIC is a national institute, how do you see the development of research institutions influence our national policy making? You know, Kasper, I think this is, this is a really interesting issue and i think it's and actually think it's one that probably affects both aic and uni you know we've, we've been around a long time you know it's uh, fantastic you know the, you're celebrating 40 years aic depends, depends when you take the uh the, our birthday so um our legislation dates back to 1971 so we could take this year as our as our 50th birthday but we our the doors opened on the institute in uh, 1973. So we're going to take the 2023 as our as our 50th. In that time, the world has really changed. The the, the criminology world has really changed. Uh, so you know, going back looking at the early material, what was what was clear around the formation of of the AIC was uh, there was a real need for for knowledge around what works in crime prevention and for an institute which would be you know, almost like a peak body, a specialist agency that would provide government uh, at both the federal and state and territory level with with guidance about what to do around criminal justice and, and crime prevention. And, and and actually at that point, it was pretty much a, a greenfield site. I mean, I think there was probably only uh, two universities that were that were actually teaching criminology you know, Melbourne and, and Sydney now there's something like 30 and what that means is uh, that th there's just so much more opportunity to uh, to get your criminological knowledge from it seems like you have really figured it out uh, but you know I think that's that's something which uh, it is some as, is a work in progress it we um, I, we had a bit of a shock to the system I suppose probably about five years ago where you know, the, there was a there was a, a big national review of agencies, and 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 AIC was was in a sense kind of raised as one of those for for from merger into you know into another agency. So we we are actually 
closely aligned with uh, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission. And that was really because I think we'd, we had lost our way a bit in terms of who our, what our focus was and where we should be, uh, you know, who, who we should be servicing. So I think I think it's only in recent years we've said, OK, let, let's let's reassess who we actually support and, and who we're delivering a service for and, and uh, sharpen that focus. How do you think institutions such as the AIC and HEONI can influence the outcome of the UN crime program? You know, this is this this is one where you know, I think I can reflect, you know, on the national experience to the international experience in the sense that just in the way that the uh, the environment at the national level has become more crowded and has changed, I think there's in a sense there's uh, a similar process going on for the PNI network and for the role that we play in supporting the UN crime program. You know, you know, if you go back 40 years, the UN didn't have the kind of infrastructure for it, the, you know, its own uh, statistics and, uh, and you know, knowledge creation that it now has. You know, it has you know, very good internal departments providing uh, research and statistics. Uh, so, you know, certainly from an AIC perspective, I know I think we, we played a lot more of an international role because I think there was a, there was a there was a dearth of of alternatives in a sense uh, to to support the UN. Um, so I think you know I think we need to think about well what's our new role in supporting uh, the UN and I think you know there's the, the PNI just has a wealth of uh, knowledge and and expertise there to to bring still to to support the UN in in delivering its role uh, and I think we probably need to. We probably need to be a bit more pushy in terms of working out how we can we can play more of a leadership role in supporting the UN. What's interesting, I think, you know, looking at the uh, recent crime congress in, in Japan, which which was a tremendous event, uh, and Kyo if you look at the Kyoto Declaration and you look at the range of issues that there are still to be addressed uh, internationally as as both crime problems uh, and also as as you know justice solutions uh, there and then you match that against the uh, the expertise there is in the in the pni network i think there's more to be done to say you know actually we we, we know a bit about this stuff and we can support you in uh, uh in a far more uh focused way than perhaps we are and i actually know hewn is very good at at, at at focusing in on you know key issues around um, human trafficking, for example, as a, as a key. Whereas I think some of us are a bit scattergun and kind of working out, well, how do we support uh, the, 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 the crime program? And here, I think there's the potential for probably, like I say, taking a leadership role in, in pinpointing particular issues where topics where we could actually say we can play a role in helping, helping achieve the desired outcomes from, from Kyoto. And where there's potential for us doing that, I think, is and that you know, when we when we look at the the changes in the in the way in which we're working now, with we're working you know, far more virtually. That sport uh, with it, you know, deficits. You know, it's there's things you lose by not being able to meet face to face. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but what what it does bring is the ability to do more. I think in terms of of working virtually. You know, this this you know, us talking now is a is a virtual event which. You know, in the scheme of things, was actually pretty easy to put together, uh, and so I think there we've got used to working in this in this kind of environment. You're used to working in different time zones uh, and making things happen, and I think that's perhaps where we can do more more in terms of potentially running virtual roundtables and and workshops and seminars uh, that are perhaps you know, fairly easy to put together. And actually, some of the some of the our you know PNI. Uh, partners are uh, better at that than others. So you know the work that Unife is doing in terms of running events, bringing together their their stakeholders, fantastic. But and I think certainly AIC has got more to learn. I think and, and more to offer. I think in terms of doing those sorts of international roundtables. So it's a long way of saying I think there's there's more for us to work out our role as ENI agencies, and that we've got lots to offer still. I think. And we already were a little bit in on COVID, and the AIC has done research on domestic violence. And my question to you, Rick, is: Are we also suffering from a domestic violence pandemic? You know, Casper, yeah, I fear that we are. So. So here, here in Australia, we well, I, I'm speaking to you from from lockdown uh, still here. We we've been going in and out of of lockdowns um, at the moment. We, we 
uh, we have lockdowns in in Australian Capital Territory, in New South Wales and uh, Victoria. So pretty much the whole of the East Coast is is locked down presently. That's that seems to uh, have had a tremendous negative effect on domestic violence. Uh, at the start of the pandemic uh, in May 2020, we conducted a survey of 15,000 women online. Uh, we, we went to great pains to make sure that the survey was was conducted in a in a safe way, and uh, we had uh, all these protocols to make sure that uh, the women completing the the survey were in safe spaces when they opened the survey, and we uh, then, then had to make sure that. Uh, the survey hadn't, hadn't been completed by men, for example. We had a number of trapdoors in the in the survey, so really took uh, uh, paid a lot of attention to that, to that design of that that online survey. But we, but, so we surveyed fifteen thousand women um, about their their experiences in the in the previous three months. Uh, so basically, looking at February, March, April, twenty twenty. The results we got were actually quite disturbing, uh, and actually, when we shared them with our government partners, there was. There was a sense of, you know, can these be true? Because they are too high for, for uh, much higher than what we would have expected um, compared to what 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 been seen in previous national surveys. What we found was that five percent uh, of women that we surveyed experienced physical or sexual violence from a current or former partner in the previous three months uh, from from being surveyed. We found that six uh, percent had experienced some form of coercive control from a current or former partner and and what uh, i guess and it, I, okay so, so you know, the then the question comes well yeah but would you have ex- would you have expected that anyway well um surveys using other methods uh, more of a face to face method actually have previously have come up with considerably lower rates than than 5% um so you know was this a uh, you know just about different methods but the clincher for us, I think, was what we found was that um, two thirds of those that had experienced physical or sexual violence in the previous three months had experienced it either for the first time or found that the uh, the experience of domestic violence for those that were repeat victims, for those it had got worse. So two thirds of those either first time offenders or it, it had got worse. So it really suggested that this was actually linked to COVID. Something was going on here that was uh, that was making domestic violence worse. And you, you know you can understand it in terms of women being uh, uh, locked up with their abusive uh, partners. Uh, we, we you know we, there's what we're recognising now is is just the extent of coercive control that that is linked with with experiences of domestic violence. And uh, and so you've got these coercive controlling partners anyway who are now. Uh, take, taking out their frustrations further on on their their partners. What we found is was actually there was a link also with, you know, there was a lot of people that lost their jobs, and there was there was uh, a sense of there was a situation where it, where men had lost their their jobs and women hadn't. It was that kind of circumstance in which men were taking taking it out on their their partners with uh, through domestic violence as, as well. We. Um, We've subsequently repeated the survey. So this, uh, again, we've run we the survey again this May, and actually the the results that we've produced are remarkably similar. So it's it's again it's something that has uh, continued since since that first survey. So throughout the COVID period, that that's that that research is currently in the publication process, and we're hoping that we publish sometime in October. But it will. Sh- we we went into far more detail about the the financial impacts of of COVID and and those impacts on domestic violence, and really able to show how financial stress was subsequently leading to uh, you know, significant impacts on domestic violence, and actually how it was unequally distributed. So we found that women with a disability, women who were uh, living in, in, in uh, that come from indigenous backgrounds, uh, women who were from culturally and linguistically diverse communities, they are all more likely to experience domestic violence than, than, than other women. So, uh, and for us, what was valuable about coming up with those findings was we were able to inform government policy around how they distributed support, domestic violence support to, to communities. Uh, and we were able to, to say to our kind of state and territory partners, look, these are the particular uh, types of communities where you need to invest more resources to to tackle the problem. The man loses his job and takes out his anger on the woman 
because of his own situation, using his frustration to make it even. It, it was this, yeah, it, it was an interesting finding, you know, and we kind of view it as being, you know, this, you know, there's something there about the loss of masculinity that, you know, a man, you know the man's lost his job, his partner still continues in, in work. And uh, it's that, that sense of, of loss of status means that they take it out on their partners. It's just, uh, you know, kind of horrendous state of affairs, really, that that, that, still, that still happens in 2021. Do you think the prevalence of and response to domestic violence will change in the post-COVID era? Um, I guess that's that's the hope. I mean, it, there's there's uh, there, there's a tremendous push here in Australia to to address domestic violence. Um, there's I think there's a recognition that it's a gener- generational issue that needs to be be addressed. There's certainly, and I think I, I touched on this notion of tolerance. I think there's a there's much less tolerance for domestic violence than, than ever there was it, here in Australia. And but but there's recognition that that needs to start from children's and, and teaching them ar- around respect uh, and the the fact that violence against women is, isn't an, an acceptable uh, behaviour from the playground onwards. But the other thing that's that's uh, that's important, and it's a, it's an area that w- that we're we're um, really quite uh, passionate about as well, is is recognizing that although there's a, there's a need for generational change, that there's a you know there's a generation now that's experiencing domestic violence, and we need to do more to prevent that repeat victimization for those for those women too. And we're beginning to work with with government now to work on perpetrator programs that could could be rolled out to 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 address domestic violence. Um, we're actually in, in negotiations at the moment with David Kennedy in the US and and his his team at uh, John Jay University to uh, replicate a model that they're using there around focused deterrence, which is uh, an approach which um, focuses on escalating responses as uh, t- to domestic violence perpetrators as as their 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 perpetration escalates, uh, and to use a kind of messaging to say you know there's. Uh, uh, this is, you know, it's unacceptable, and we will increase our uh, attention on you if you if you do continue to um, to perpetrate domestic violence. So hopefully, by the end of the year, we'll uh, we'll be able to announce uh, trial sites where we can attempt to identify uh, an approach which deals with perpetration, which deals with re- repeat victimization for 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 women experiencing domestic violence. That's great, and I hope that your research will also then be published for us and for everyone else interested in the topic. And then there's this other thing that I wanted to talk about, and that's climate change. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, uh, released a report in August. uh, And the report projects that over the next 20 years, the global temperature is expected to exceed 1.5 degrees of warming, which increases heat waves that are critical for agriculture and health. Climate change also intensifies the weather cycle increases intense rainfalls and flooding, as well as more drought. And taking into account what climate change means means for agriculture, our food and living, and that traditionally the scarcity of supplies leads to citizens and nations being more defensive and aggressive in protecting and pursuing our natural resources. And what I'm particularly interested in is, does climate change increase smuggling of migrants? What kinds of crime trends do could we see develop sim- simultaneously with a more aggressive climate change? It's a it's a really good question, Casper. And what's really interesting from the the AIC's perspective is that this puts us in in kind of uncomfortable space in in the sense of we we focus a lot of our time uh, on taking a very empirical approach where everything is historical. It's always looking backwards uh, and uh, because you know we're collecting data on things that have happened rather than thinking about what's What's going to happen in future? So this is kind of a little bit of, uh, yeah, putting me out of my comfort zone. But it's, it's, it's a bit of kind of crystal ball gazing here. But the great thing is, right, I can I can say what I like, right, because it's, it's I don't know what's going to happen, but I can I can use what I know from the past as to to I guess to, you know, I guess predict what might happen. And I think um, smuggling of migrants, I, I think is 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 something which which I think you know wouldn't be unexpected. And I think the reason for that is as, you know, as you say, you know, with with climate change. The climate change brings with it those long-term trends, but it also brings with it, it seems, you know, changing weather events, which which will create disasters as well as as well as those long-term trends that will occur in terms of you know drought and uh, and and floods. 
and and both of those will create shocks in their own own right, I suppose, which which you would expect would will displace people, will will make it harder for people uh, in developing countries in particular who that don't have the infrastructure to be able to deal with those those shocks that come from disasters as well as long term trends to deal with those. And and you, I, I suspect what we'll see is greater demand for for movement of populations from parts of the world that are you know ravaged by climate change to to those that are less so so you know and, and that will bring with it demand for the services of of people smugglers probably in a way that we've may not have seen here in our region southern hemisphere in the, in the pacific you know we could we could foresee i guess you know a number of trends you know rising sea levels is is going to uh, is going to affect migration from uh, Pacific nations to uh, to Australia, New Zealand, and and, and into the region. But also, we we have seen in the past, and it and it's been been an issue with people smugglers uh, moving people from kind of routes down through Africa, through the Middle East, through uh, Asia, and then through in Indonesia into into uh, Australia. And actually, there's you know Australia's been the benefit of being an island is that it's been able to you know quite successfully stop people smugglers by taking a pretty hard line approach in in turning boats back. But I suspect, you know, you could see a lot more displacement of, of, of populations that will be looking to move up through through uh, into Europe, but also probably down in uh, our direction as well. I think, you know, closer to home, I think, you know, if we touch on what we're likely to see with climate change, I think it's interesting. So I think, you know, Australia anyway is, is actually quite an urbanised country. Um, so a lot of the population lives in a relatively small number of cities. And those cities are very well resourced, very well serviced. And, and we already have, you know, in a sense, a split, an urban-rural split. So, you know, you, you go out into the rural areas, which is, which is most of Australia, so, you know, vast continent, largely, uh, largely rural. A lot of Australia's wealth is based on, uh, on primary industries, on mining and on agriculture. A lot of, a lot of the wealth sits outside of the, of the areas which are actually the, the most affluent. And you, you can imagine that that's going to get worse uh, with climate change. So, uh, we, you know, how is that going to affect the uh, agriculture in future, and how much um, how much more difficult is it going to be to to maintain you know, the the water that's going to be needed for, for resources? It it feels you know it feels like distant memory now now that we've had COVID, but we had tremendous uh, tremendously bad bushfires uh, that tore through much of the much of the east coast in particular, but also some of the west coast, and and that was on the back of you know a couple of years of really dry winters that. Well, are we going to see that again it, you know, as, as weather events change? And what will that do to, to natural resources and, and do to those actually quite stretched farming communities that then you know, may struggle to survive? And, and, and so, so then what does that do to, to crime? You know, do, will we see you know, a, a split between you know, rural areas, which traditionally haven't been high crime areas? Will we see there being you know, on a population basis more crime occurring in those areas which, where, which may experience more economic disadvantage compared to to urban areas and i think that's you know that's an interesting uh, microcosm that that could be reflected you know globally as well you know will we see countries that are largely uh, agrarian based uh, experience more hardship in and therefore more crime events than perhaps more urbanized areas yeah it's uh, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon i think that we we like to experience I, I tell you also though that I want to take this off in, in another direction as well though because you know there, there's there's hope in technology in the sense of you know Australia inve is, has invested tremendously in solar panels for example and solar solar energy as a way of you know uh, helping to deal with climate change issues to stop you know use of fossil fuels but what's in interesting is that that they, they that that also creates opportunities for crime as well so there's you know we, we, we're seeing solar panels as being actually quite easy to steal. Uh, and you know, as we see batteries beginning to be rolled out as well, they're actually also potential theft targets. So you, we actually may see that there's there's a crime generation that's created by the fact of, you know, we're trying to create new technology to deal with it as well. And, and there's also a link there with, you know, when you look forward to to what's going to be needed, there's there's going to be a, a need for, for a lot more rare earth uh, minerals to to power the new industry of of you know both uh, solar but also you know the the new new wave of, of battery technology that's going to be needed for for electric cars for example and it's interesting if you look at what what happened with 
with catalytic converters, which you know will eventually die out because we won't have combustion engines. But they're a real they're, they're a theft target. So you know, just thinking about crime, there's an example where those things are introduced to to make you know pollution less of a problem, but they contain you know they contain minerals like palladium and rhodium and and, and platinum. That's actually you know it, it is it can be um, you know smelted down and and, re, uh, and sold. And so, so these these uh, these products that are that are made to deal with you know, essentially you know climate change issues could potentially be death targets and a crime problem in their own right. And I think you know with electric cars, will they be will they be will batteries be a theft target because uh, because that technology will be uh, in demand, and and where there's a demand, you you see that there's a there's often a supply that's both legitimate and illegitimate. To understand our presence, we have to understand our history because it's the decisions made in the history that will affect our future either way. You wrote it well when you talked about technology because you have been a criminologist for 30 years. And during those 30 years, the internet and social media were created, the phone booth and computer were merged into one small device, what we call a smartphone today. Technology has, has made our lives easier with enabling calling, texting, sharing information and connecting with each other. The technological development created the internet. Simultaneously, it created the deep web where the black market thrives and illegal items are bought and sold cryptocurrencies. And all this happens out of reach from the authorities. How is it possible that whenever technology thrives, criminals always find a way to benefit from it? Wow, Casper. Let me first start by saying you really know how to make someone feel old. <laughs> I, I'm just, I just go off on a tangent. Um, my first job uh, was as a as a research officer in a in a probation service uh, doing research on uh, on offenders, uh, and uh, so predates email. And I, if we wanted to speak, uh, wanted to get a response from. Uh, one of our uh, field offices in the county, we would write write out a memo that uh, our secret- secretary would type up and post to the field office, who would then do the same to send a response back uh, in writing. It was, it was comical, really, now when you think about how emails just were almost instantaneous in, in terms of uh, responses. So yes, huge changes in those in those 30 years and huge change in technology. And you know, technology and crime is an absolutely fascinating issue because technology seldom takes account of, of the potential for crime. Uh, and it always feels like designers are taken by surprise that that crime has occurred and then have to retrofit a solution to the to that the crime problem they've created. And, and I guess from my perspective, you know, you can view technology, you know, the, the crime that's generated from technology is it's a uh, it's almost like uh, it's almost like pollution. Uh, it's an externality in any economic terms that's that's created as a result of of innovation. That you know you've uh, in the same way that you know smoke coming out from a from a factory is uh, the byproduct of of manufacturing. You can see you know crime and victimization that comes from designing a new product as almost pollution in the same way that uh, that it's it's you know it. It's directly linked back to something that a manufacturer has done, uh, because that crime wouldn't have occurred had that product not been created in the way that's been created. And if you think of it in in, in those terms, you know you you, sh- you should also think that the problem could be designed out. So I think there's much more that uh, designers of new technology should be doing from the outset to think about ways in which you can stop that crime pollution from 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 occurring in in the first instance you know that there's a there there is there is a move towards you know designing out crime in different areas you know there's you know, secured by design in building approaches now so so manufacturing doors and windows to standards which will stop a house from being broken into you know there's uh, across Europe, for example, there are there are European standards for what sort of attack a car should withstand from being broken into. You know, so there's standards for vehicle immobilization, for example. You know, but there's not the same sort of standards for design uh, of on the internet. You know, design of applications, design of uh, of ser- systems and services, which mean that you know, typic- you know, what typically happens is uh, is uh, you know, if you take an application, it's designed uh, with 
uh, user friendliness in mind and designed to to attract people to use it. So you do get this uptake of a, of a, a product. But then at the same time, for the you know that that same product is uh, also picked up by by criminals and as for criminal purposes. And this this just happens time and time again. So any anything that's that's used to help your life for good, there's also a, there's also a negative potential for it to be used for for bad as well. And actually, you know, and we, you know, we, we talked, uh, I joked about us not being able to predict the future, but often, you know, you can look at these products and think, actually, this, you should be able to design out some of these features to, to stop them from being creating crime harvests in, in future, or at least be able to develop in, develop in, in a way that will allow them to be easily, easily updated so that they don't continue to be a, a, a crime problem. Uh, I'll give you an example that's just come, come off the top of my head. There, there, there's, in the past, there's been an issue with, you know, light bulbs even now being able to be uh, internet enabled, uh, and there've been examples where light bulbs in that in that circumstance have been used to create DDoS attacks. Um, so because you know if you get you know a thousand light bulbs that you can control the the chip and the memory in those, and you can get them all to then target a, a particular website and uh, all at the same time to to basically you know stop it from being being used. Now, what happened was that that, that essentially was, was something that couldn't be stopped because the uh, it hadn't been identified that the you know the, the password wasn't secure, so the hackers just just were able to um, uh, take them over. But as a result of that, the only way you could solve the problem was by replacing the light bulbs. You couldn't the, the manufacturer couldn't then retrofit a solution by you know reprogramming or or, or patching. The uh, the light bulbs online, uh, and that's something that which you know we need to we need to be mindful of. That even if you don't recognise that there's a there's a potential with technology for it to be used for bad, you should be able to design it in a way that it, it can be patched, that it, they can be retrofitted to solve the problem uh, afterwards. And in a lot of cases, it's it's either not recognised uh, uh, first of all, or it's not recognized subsequently and dealt with, or it can't be dealt with when it is recognized. And, and online, you know, there are just so many examples where technology is is failing us uh, and creating crime harvests. You know, we mentioned right at the start, some of the research that's, that's, that we're doing around child sexual abuse. You know, take that as an example where last year, I think it's something like uh, 26 uh, million reports were made to the US National Center for uh, Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, 26 million cases of child sexual abuse material being being reported. You know, if you think that that's a, a classic problem where it's been manufactured by designers, you know, creating products for us to use that are then used by criminals to exploit children. Well, that, you know, why can, why can we not create code in a safe way that actually can solve these kinds of problems? And, and I guess we are beginning to move that way. So uh, here in Australia, the eSafety Commissioner, which is a uh, is an agency that that deals with receiving reports here of child exploitation and and looks at ways of of stopping bullying and harassment and child grooming issues. Uh, they're now they're now heavily involved in an approach to safety by design. So getting designers to start thinking about how you can design out crime in the first place from applications and services uh, online but there's so much further we need to go there are, you know there are almost a, you know as you mentioned that all of these these new technologies that are available that are being used you know whether it's uh, you know cryptocurrencies or you know, dark net markets or or even just uh, services like through uh, social media that are so, but but it, that's also huge uh, opportunities for us as criminologists to to work on the this you know essentially you know, this new frontier of of crime problems and crime harvests for us to work out ways of solving the problem too. For example, there are these uh, air tags that are used. You can put it in your like uh, laptop bag, or you can put it in your gym bag, and then you will always know where your gym bag is. But it can also be used to put on other people's cars. And the same time, the same thing is with also like safe, secure emails and, and the deep web, like ProtonMail, for example. It could be used by criminals, but it could also be used by victims that want to come forward. But there's always two sides to the story. I mean, a classic is end-to-end -end encryption on on messaging apps. You know that it you know very clearly serves a 
you know, a, a positive social good in the sense of, you know, for um, states that are insecure to allow people to, to talk securely without governments knowing what's being said. But that's, you know, that same technology is also, like I say, being used for sharing child sexual abuse material. And we don't know how much there is being shared because we, we can't see it. So another classic where, you know, you've got to, you know, there's a trade-off going on of use for good versus use for evil, I guess. And, you know, I guess we need to, we, we need to work out what's our level of tolerance. Where, where do, what, do we, what are we willing to accept in terms of victimization for the availability and use for us to use those, those products? Yeah, and I, I think we're going to compare it with democracy, with the good guys and the bad guys vote. Is it like democracy for everyone or, or a particular group of people that everyone wins, but everyone can also lose? But thinking more from a research perspective and how to disseminate your research work, what has changed over the past two years in the ways of international collaboration, for example, online conferences and meetings in general? Like, what are the new ways of reaching out to public and professionals? Yeah, and I, I, I think this is an area where we are still learning. You know, I, I think you know we're. We're in this new environment where we used to we used to meet face to face internationally with the with the PNI network twice a year and disseminate information via emails and uh, and that sort of thing. And I think we've now got so used to using online technology now for you know for, for video conferencing that it really does open up opportunities for for greater collaboration internationally. So my day is is largely spent like this, you know, in you know, virtual meetings, talking online, clicking off one meeting into the next, into the next, uh, and that can be anywhere in the world. It really doesn't, really doesn't matter now. It is mostly in Australia, but it's no different, other than a time zone, for this to be occurring uh, online. I'm still sat in the same seat. What that means is there are huge opportunities for us to develop new ways of dissemination. So some of the things that we've been we've been practicing with and trialing are holding um, a lot more workshops one hour presentations essentially for our stakeholders where we present the results of our research through microsoft teams to a, to a group of maybe 50 policymakers and it'd be one research project that we just tell them about you know perhaps do it on a monthly basis and it's you know a very quick and easy way of you know presenting to our, our core audience now you know we weren't doing that before uh, and so we found you know there's there's new ways of of reaching our audiences in an easy way and there's no reason why you know that same kind of approach couldn't be extended to international partners and international stakeholders that we we could hold far more uh, workshops and you know collaboration events than we actually do and i think we're probably doing this across the netherlands say okay well let's find things to share perhaps share our share our stakeholder audiences and uh, and you know have situations where one pni hosts an event but gets another pni to present to uh, to the audience about new material because I think you know there is there is a significant amount for us to learn from each other. You know, new approaches that are used in in one part of the world, people may not be aware of in in another. Or you know, I I gave the example of us working with John Jay University in the US. Well, you know, yesterday morning at at seven thirty in the morning, we were you know learning what they're doing. But in the same way, you know, it could be anywhere else in the world that we're learning about what's what's going on. The other thing that we're we're trying in this this new world, you know, this is is this kind of environment where we're, where we're doing podcasts. Know, really interested in what what's going on, especially in in our world in, in in criminology. There's always an interesting crime. Maybe after all the restrictions are uplifted, I think we'll see a small drop in the amount of podcasts. And I think also that it's of course of course it's good for the environment that we don't have to fly everywhere for a presentation. So true. Yeah. Well, you know, if you think uh, so, yeah. So I, I would uh, once a fortnight, I would be flying somewhere to another city and often it was for it was for a, you know often for a one hour meeting as, as it would turn out that could have been that could have been done quite easily online the the international travel is really interesting you know because obviously for us it, you know we're a long way from everyone so so it's a long it takes a long time to get anywhere and it's very expensive you know to travel to Helsinki for example would be would be a solid 24 hours you know to 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 get there and with all the consequence of uh, of the jet lag for you know two three days that comes with it, you know to do something like this, you know, and, and whereas we are able to, to actually you know have an have an event, have conversations, which mean that I'm not jet lagged for three days. <laughs> so I, I know you you'd certainly lose something in terms of you know the the side conversations and the building rapport that 
is much easier face to face. But I think there's a you know that, that I think this is probably something that is going to be here to stay. But hopefully with a you know a bit of moderation with the occasional face to face that will happen. Like what happens after the event when you can just talk about everything that happened and then a little bit on the side and that that's the place where we also make our friends yeah. like after the work when we can talk about without any any formal restrictions yeah. we can say so and it's interesting and i think we need to you know i think we probably need to embrace the the virtual world and and uh think of ways in which you can do that online so you know so we've you know just just within the aic we, you know, we make a point of using uh microsoft teams as though we're just passing someone's desk and just kind of randomly calling people and seeing you know seeing how they are and and starting to have you know with our policy makers you know just uh virtual coffee catch-ups you know we the 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 coffee shops in canberra live off public servants who meet in coffee shops all the time and you know i'm sure it's the same uh in uh, in helsinki but you know we've we got into the habit of now just meeting uh, our policy makers with a with a coffee we need to grab more of the the social into some of these these events as well to make them more human yeah and i think i've heard a lot about like bosses just calling in to their workers because we're all forced yeah. to, to also work from home and not just live there yeah. so there's less stress from all the traveling and other stuff that's that happens during the day for example taking the car to work is there traffic or not and then but when everything is at home in one place it's easier but at the same time we're missing out on so much so i think there will be a fine line after this yeah it will be interesting to see how much how much goes back to the old ways if you like once uh once the uh the, the pandemic's lifted i've noticed that you know there was a slip back to people shaking hands again so which makes me think ah, oh, maybe Maybe we'll just forget, forget all of this and go back to the, the ways in which we used to do things. The times before the pandemic will be at some point the old times. Yeah. So thank you, Rick. And to promote your events, there is the Australian Crime and Violence Prevention Awards, which will be announced in November. Then you also have two new podcasts incoming, one on a motorcycle gang program and one on an episode on live streaming on child sexual abuse. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, sure. The um, the Australian Crime and Violence Prevention Awards, or ACVPAs as we call them, um, is uh, in, a, in its 29th year. So we celebrate 30 years of, of the, the awards next year. It's, it's a bit of feel-good for the AIC. We, we celebrate gr- grassroots crime prevention projects. Uh, so uh, each year we, we, we open a, uh, a call for applications, uh, and they're targeted at uh, community groups that are doing local projects that do something uh, to reduce crime locally. And we also have a separate uh, round for policing agencies to, that for local projects that they're delivering. We this year actually uh, uh, on Monday we uh, selected uh, the 12, 12 projects that uh, have been successful uh, in winning a. a Australian Crime Arts Prevention Award, uh, and we we split them into gold, silver, and bronze. Uh, and they'll, they, like, as you say, they'll be announced in November. Now, well, uh, again, part of this brave new world we're in. Uh, tip: We we cancelled the the awards last year because we didn't know how to to deal with it with with COVID. Previously, we 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 had an, an event that was uh, held at uh, our Parliament House here in Canberra, uh, where we'd get you know dignitaries would would get a, a the the minister. Or that, that oversees the AIC to come and present the awards to to the recipients, and we'd fly in. This year's going to be different. We we know we can't do the awards face to face. You know, we we don't expect us you know to be in a position where we'll be able to hold events in November. So we're going to do an, an online event. And in terms of the podcasts, uh, so yeah, as we said, you know, we we're new to podcasting, and we we started beginning of the year and. Uh, we've 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 had two episodes out so far that seems to have gone gone quite well. It's called Crimpod. Uh, do look it up and and uh, download and listen. Um, we've got two two new episodes coming. So as you say, one on the uh, exit program uh, is uh, actually it's a program that is based on some some AIC research on Scandinavian approaches to dealing with outlaw motorcycle gangs. Uh, the, the research was picked up by Queensland police, uh, and they then they went to Norway and, and Sweden to to look at the schemes that were in place there to to help in the disassociation process for uh, outlaw motorcycle gang members to to help to get them to to leave clubs and to rebuild their lives afterwards uh, away from the clubs. 
and they've, they've created a, a program that's that's based around how they can support uh, members that actually uh, disassociate in Queensland from from clubs. And, and it's been quite successful already in uh, being very much kind of evidence-based approach using our research. We actually, we um, in the development of the program, it was only based on earlier research, but we then worked with Queensland Police that they they took a, a, a source handler offline. So this is someone that was was working undercover with with outdoor motorcycle gang members uh, to you know, to gather intelligence from human sources. Uh, we took him offline and trained him as a researcher uh, and sent him out to to interview former outlaw motorcycle gang members. And the material that came back is is like no other that we you, you'd get because this is you know, uh, someone who's used to talking to uh, outlaw motorcycle gang members to these these former members about their experience in the gangs and. And finding out why they uh, why they decided to join their experiences in the clubs and why they decided to leave, and so that podcast episode interviews both the chief superintendent who oversaw the program, but also the uh, the guy who actually did the interviews and then helped to set the program up subsequently. So it's a really interesting yeah, uh, episode. Uh, it's the first time that we'd actually you know sent a researcher out into the field with a with a firearm <laughs> as a as a uh, uh, as a as a <laughs> That sounds very yeah, as a sworn policeman, that's, yeah. that's, that's typical here at Hale. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the, the other episode is is uh, is different again. So uh, the, we spoke earlier about the research we're doing around live streaming of child sex abuse. So this is interviewing two of our our internal teams. So Sarah Napier heads up the program, and her colleague Cohen Tunison, who uh, have been doing this research around chat logs uh, with and and analysing the negotiations that go on with with facilitators and and consumers of, of that material, which uh, you know comes with a bit of a bit of a health warning on it because it's you know, it's pretty pretty graphic stuff and it's, it's disgusting, but um, you know stuff that again that we hope will will lead to ways in which we can identify approaches to tackling the problem. So two very different podcasts. And and, the, and our focus is really in not so much about the findings from the research, but about the experiences of doing the research. So it's talking to the the researchers about the the, the problems they had in doing doing the research and the, the sorts of designs and methods that they were applying to to try and unpack these these problems. So it's a it's a particular take as it's kind of understanding from a from a researcher perspective. I was reading about this uh, research when I was waiting for you to drop in and I will definitely listen to this podcast episode. I, I also have to go and download some of your episodes. For you, if you're listening to this podcast and you think these topics are interesting, please head out to AIC's website and see if there's something also for you. To end this podcast with style, what would be your three birthday wishes to Heoni? Well, first of all, I should say... Uh, a huge congratulations uh, on reaching 40 years. It, it, it really is a, a a huge achievement in uh, in doing so because uh, you know as, as we were saying, there's there's so many other other you know, there. It's a crowded marketplace there now, and the fact that Huni is is you know such a world renowned name and continues to be uh, you know is, is is I think testament to to the, the staff of of Huni uh, both present and past, which is just been tremendous. So my birthday wishes, uh, number one is, is that you, you maintain the gift of relevance. Uh, what I mean by that is Huni's research is hugely influential because you, you're hitting subjects which policymakers are, are crying out for, for information on and, and solutions to be found. You know, the, the work that's, you know, I, I keep coming back to this, but particularly around uh, human trafficking issues has been uh, absolutely uh, first rate and and uh, making a tremendous uh, tremendous difference. And I think going forwards, if, if Uni can continue to maintain relevance in its in its work, that will really set it up for the future. It's about you know it's about finding ways in which that applied research can be can be used by um, obviously national institutions, but also international. You know the, the way in which. Puny still recognised, you know, within the UN is, uh, you know, is is testament to the work that you're doing. So that's number one, relevance. The the second one uh, is another kind of odd one, I think uh, I'm going to say, but it's uh, is to main, maintain excitement and wonder because what makes us get up in the morning as researchers is that wonder about what the what the world looks like and how we can make it better and i think that's if the staff at uni can continue to wonder 
and to you know have that excitement about how you can make the world a different place i think that's that's a really important gift and then the final one is i just uh, i'd just love to gift you another 40 years because you know i think you've done tre- such tremendous work over the past 40 years uh, i just want to see you continue to function and to to keep producing the amazing work that uni have uh, produced really well done and look forward to uh, seeing more great work come out in future I think those birthday wishes are the greatest that we have ever gotten. Thank you still for participating in this podcast. And remember, listeners, there will be more. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And if you want to know more about what Heaven is up to, subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you, Rick. Have a nice weekend and hope the sun is still shining. Okay, no, I can't end it like that because that makes no sense. Well, I can say, well, <laughs> thank, thank you so much for inviting me to, to participate in, in, the, uh, in the podcast. Casper, and I can say that the sun has set now, and uh, I think it's uh, it's time for me to go get a gin and tonic. I think. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a nice week. Thanks so much. Have a good weekend, Casper.